Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 13 of You Don't Know Jack. I'm your host, Sarah Dimio, and this is the podcast with everything you need to know following the career of the legend himself, Jack Nicholson. Today is a big one. Now we really are out of the B-movies. Today we're talking about the role that officially solidified Jack as a star. I am, of course, talking about his role as Robert Eroica Dupee, or also known as Bobby Dupee, depending on whether he's down in Southern California or up at home in Washington State, in the 1970 drama Five Easy Pieces. Now, before I get into this classic, I wanted to share a little piece of information I found on how Jack got the role of Tad Pringle in On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, which I talked about last week. The question was raised on our Facebook page by a listener, Steve. The question was, is there any further information on how Jack got that role, especially considering his attitude towards his performance in the role afterwards? Well, interestingly enough, I think I actually stumbled across the answer to that as I was doing research for Five Easy Pieces. I came across an article on blackbookmag.com. The title of it is Revisiting the Culture of Bob Rafelson's Five Easy Pieces. Well, the story goes like this. During the pre-production of On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, Producer Robert Evans could not find anyone to fit the role of Tad. But then, in one of the casting sessions, Evans finally said, hold it! So the head of talent thinks that Evans is talking about the young actor who they were watching at the time. But Evans says, no, no, not him. The other guy, the guy who didn't talk. The smile. So it took weeks for them to track down the smile. Evans just wanted to hear the smiles speak. And finally, he was able to meet him in person. No audition, didn't even know if he could act. Just that smile that got Jack the role of Tad. And there's a quote in the article from Robert Evans where he said, It sure in hell was a first for me, mesmerized by another guy's smile. Well, it being the late 60s and society not being as woke as it is today, I can only imagine. Now, as we move on to Jack's next project, Five Easy Pieces, let's start with how it came to be written. As you just heard, the name of that article refers to it as Bob Rafelson's Five Easy Pieces. That's right, this is the second joint project of Jack and Bob Rafelson. And like I said when I reviewed Head in episode 9, I want to give their collaborations a chef's kiss. So to give you a refresher, Bob Rafelson, along with Burt Schneider, created the production company Raybert Productions. Raybert Productions is the company behind the creation of the monkeys, with it being Rafelson's brainchild. So then Rafelson, along with Jack, co-produced 1968's Head, the film that was meant to crush the monkey's image. So in 1969, Bob Rafelson and Burt Schneider took on a third partner, Stephen Blauner, and expanded Raybert Productions into BBS Productions. BBS stands for Burt, Bob, and Steve. 
and it's BBS Productions, which produced Five Easy Pieces. So let's have a moment with that one. The same company that created The Monkees also created Five Easy Pieces. The film was directed by Bob Rafelson, produced by Rafelson and Richard Weschler, and the screenplay was by Adrian Joyce. And if Adrian Joyce's name sounds familiar, that's because she had also written the screenplay for The Shooting in 1966. We're going to see her appear again as a writer in some of Jack's future projects, so it's important to keep in mind that the name Adrian Joyce is a pseudonym and that she does also go by her real name, Carol Eastman. So according to what I've read, Five Easy Pieces draws very much on Bob Rafelson's own life and sort of the collective consciousness of the time. It's in keeping with the same attitudes of the late 1960s counterculture that we've talked about a lot, but it's reaching a point where it's entering a new phase. It's not just the hippie youth of the 60s feeling the pressure to conform to society, to pursue the quote-unquote American dream, as it were. Now it's entering a point where it's the everyman who feels that way. It's getting to be the grown-ups now who are feeling that resistance. And I don't know that resistance even fully describes it. It's also more of a skepticism towards fitting into society, becoming that thing that the world seems to expect out of you. And those are the feelings that I think Rafelson was trying to encapsulate in the creation of the character Robert Dupee. And I certainly don't think it was a coincidence that the main character's name is Robert or Bobby. The director of photography is another name that I've mentioned a number of times on this podcast, Laszlo Kovacs, who was also the cinematographer for Hell's Angels on Wheels, Rebel Rousers, and Easy Rider. Toby Rafelson, Bob Rafelson's wife at the time, also worked on the production as the interior designer. The first characters that we meet consist of Jack as Robert Eroica Dupi, Karen Black as Rayette DePesto. We've seen Karen Black before as a prostitute in Easy Rider, one of the two that takes LSD with Wyatt and Billy while they're all at Mardi Gras. Also, Billy Greenbush as Elton and Fanny Flagg as Elton's wife or girlfriend, Stoney. It's not completely clear if they've married or not, but they do have a baby. And just as a side note, if you don't know, Fanny Flagg is not only an actress and comedian, but she's also an author. She wrote the 1987 novel Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, which was adapted into the 1991 movie Fried Green Tomatoes. I, to be honest, can't remember the first time I saw Five Easy Pieces. I've seen it multiple times over the years, but I think it would have to be in that time range of when I was between 14 and 15, because I think I've mentioned before that after I first saw The Shining when I was 12, which kicked off my Jack obsession, in the following few years, we were heading up to Blockbuster almost every weekend so I could pick out a new Jack movie to discover. And I'm fairly certain that Five Easy Pieces is one of said movies that I got to know at the time. I know that we had a copy of it on VHS somewhere for a number of years, so if that tells you anything. 
But it's another one of those movies, I don't know if I could fully understand it at the time, by which I mean the complexities. There's a lot going on with each character that I don't know if my young mind could completely make sense out of it. Even now, after having just watched it again, I find myself analyzing each character and their intentions, but also how their different backgrounds affect their choices. Five Easy Pieces opens on an oil rig in Southern California. When we first see Bobby, he's operating an excavator. And then we hear the opening of Tammy Wynette's Stand By Your Man. We see Bobby, along with his friend Elton, working at the oil rig from the morning until sundown when we see Bobby driving home. And to be clear, in this first half or so of the film, I'm going to refer to him as Bobby. When we get into the second half, I'm going to start referring to him as Robert. Because I think you'll find that once we change locations, it really starts to feel like a totally different world altogether. So Bobby comes home that evening to his girlfriend, Rayette. When we first see her, she's sitting on the bathroom sink, doing her makeup in the mirror. Rayette works as a truck stop waitress. This is easy to tell as she's wearing this tight little pink dress and a name tag. We also find that the country music we've been listening to has been coming from Rayette's record player. Once Bobby gets home, gets himself a beer, and plops onto the couch, Rayette comes over to kiss him. The record finishes, so she says she's going to play it again, but Bobby stops her and casually says if she plays it again, he's going to throw it out the window. So, how does one describe Rayette? I guess simple would be the word. She has a thick southern accent, and she has big dreams of singing country music. Not only is she always playing these Tammy Wynette records, but when she's not playing them, she's singing each one of them. And it's in this first scene that we learn something about Bobby, that he has a background in music. Because it's Rayette who brings it up, asking, with his background, why doesn't he ever help her with her music? But Bobby brushes her off, and we see that this is a common thing in their relationship. Rhea asks Bobby to tell her he loves her, and he changes the subject. It becomes evident pretty quickly that Rhea is not someone with a lot of self-esteem, and it seems 
That's how it's so easy for Bobby to keep stringing her along in the relationship. So they go out bowling that evening with Elton and Stoney. Everybody is bowling a great game, except for Rayette. She's getting one pin or just gutter balls. Bobby is getting increasingly agitated at her. And I think it's pretty eye-opening as to how volatile Bobby is. Like there's always something boiling beneath the surface. You have to be aware at all times not to say or do the wrong thing that's going to make him boil over completely. So Rayette hits a strike on the last frame. And she's excited at first, but Bobby cuts her down immediately saying, Oh, great. You hit a strike on the last ball of a losing game. And right at that moment, he turns around and flirts with the two girls in the lane next to them. And Rayette, visibly hurt and humiliated, says maybe she'll go wait in the car. So dejected, she goes outside. Bobby stays behind to pay their check. And just then, the two girls that he just tried to flirt with come over to chat him up. Their names are Twinkie, played by Marlena McGuire, and Betty, played by a very young Sally Struthers. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to Bobby's voice. Notice his accent in this part of the movie. I even wanted to ask you. You're on the TV, aren't you? <laughs> Am I on the TV? She says you're the guy that sells all the cars on TV. <laughs> uh... I told you. My name's Shirley, but they call me Betty, and her name's Twinkie. <laughs> Twinkie? Yeah, she's so Twinkie. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Well, Betty and Twinkie, it uh, sure is nice talking to you girls. I wish that I had some more time. That's a wig you wear, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I told her it was you, but that you're wearing a wig, because on the TV you're mostly all... Uh, Bob's up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your little friend's real, real sharp. Well, I don't, uh, I don't wear the wig on TV because if you're gonna be out there in front of two and a half million people, you've got to be sincere. I mean, I like to wear it when I'm in bowling alleys and slipping around and stuff like that. I think it gives me a little class. What do you think? Oh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I can see a little bitty of the net up there. That's what give it away. <laughs> <laughs> I had more time to talk to you girls, but uh, I have to, I'll, uh... But before Bobby can come up with a coherent response, we cut to the next scene where he's headed out to the car where Rhea is waiting, in tears. He's very controlling on top of everything else. When he goes over to the car, the first words out of his mouth aren't anything like an apology. He just says, come on, Ray, we're going over to Elton's. Now, before I get into what I'm going to talk about here, um, I just want to point out that it is a touchy subject for some people. So I do apologize if it's a little bit too much, but I think this is important to notice in this movie. I think that the way Bobby treats Rhea is very much in line with the behaviors of narcissistic abuse. I would say that Bobby is a narcissist. No regard for other people, how his actions affect other people, but instead just deflects 
and controls. And he gaslights her, too, because the definition of gaslighting is to make someone question their own sanity. He also lies to her often, even if it comes down to lying by omission, because lying by omission is still lying. Bobby and Elton, in another scene, go off and hook up with Betty and Twinkie from the bowling alley. And the next day, he tells Rayette, I was with Elton all night. Well, that part is true. Elton was there. And in the narcissist's mind, to say that much is not an untruth. This film came out at a time where it was not fully realized that not all abuse is physical. There is also emotional abuse, mental abuse. And I think Rayette certainly doesn't realize these patterns because as long as Bobby comes back to her and gives her some half-hearted explanation, then he's hers again. And that's how it becomes a cycle. Because in that situation, the brain works by a reward system. The pain of going through the negligence and the cheating, and then to be rewarded by the apology and making up again. On an early morning, Bobby and Elton are on the highway driving to work at the oil rig. Bobby is driving and Elton is in the passenger seat, and they're passing what appears to be a pint of whiskey back and forth. And then they come up on this huge traffic jam. It's backing up the whole interstate. Elton is unbothered, saying he's not in any rush. But Bobby, being Bobby, immediately goes into a rage. So he gets out of the car, walks up through the cars to see what's going on. He even stands on some guy's bumper to try and get a better look. And then he climbs up onto the back of a pickup truck and finds a stand-up piano covered with a tarp. So he sits down at the piano and begins to play Chopin's Fantasy in F minor. And then the traffic starts to move again. Elton starts calling out to Bobby that the truck is turning off at the exit, but Bobby pays no mind to him. Elton drives Bobby's car on into work and Bobby keeps on playing the piano as the truck takes off. The next time that we do see Bobby and Elton at the oil rig, they're on their lunch break. And Elton is letting Bobby know that Rayette is pregnant. He says it's true. She told him. And Bobby isn't saying a word, just kind of looking at Elton as he's going on about how after a while you begin to like the whole idea, like he did with Stoney, heavily implying that Bobby should go on and marry Rayette. But Bobby wants nothing of it. It's ridiculous. I'm sitting here listening to some cracker asshole lives in a trailer park compare his life to mine. Keep on telling me about the good life, Elton, because it makes me puke. Well, you saying you think you're something better than what I am, now that's something else. Well, I can't say much of someone who could run off and leave a woman in a situation like this and feel easy about it. That's all I have to say. Well, I'm glad that's all you've got to say, Elton, because I'm about as goddamn tired of your mouth as I am working on this goddamn job. The thing is, though, I have trouble believing that Rayette really is pregnant or if that's just a story. I don't think it's something that Elton would have made up, but I do think that Rayette is a desperate enough person for Bobby's love and affection that it's a story that she might make up to get Bobby to marry her. And the other reason I think this might be the case is because no mention is ever made again about her being pregnant. Like it was just a fleeting thought 
that's just as quickly forgotten by both Bobby and Rayette. Now, once Bobby storms off and quits his job, Elton is then arrested on the site for apparently holding up a gas station. And this is the moment in the film where worlds seem to shift. After all this, it's not said how much time has gone by, but in the next scene, we see Bobby driving down to Los Angeles to see his sister Partita, or Tita, as he calls her, played by actress Lois Smith. Already the tone is different, okay? We're not hearing Tammy Wynette. Instead, we're hearing classical piano music, chromatic fantasia in fugue, to be exact. Tita is at a recording studio, meticulously playing this piece. And when they take a break, Bobby goes in to see her, and she jumps up from the bench, goes and gives him a hug, and she looks at him and quietly calls him by his full name, Robert Eroica. Eroica is a reference to Symphony No. 3, a symphony in four movements by Beethoven, and it's one of his most celebrated works. And I think it's about here where we start to wonder, who is Bobby, really? Well, it would seem that he's not just this beer-guzzling, blue-collar rube with a heavy twang in his voice. He actually comes from an upper-middle-class family made up of serious musicians. Bobby himself, or Robert, was in fact a child prodigy on the piano. And this is probably a good time for me to tell you where the title of the movie comes from. Five Easy Pieces is literally a book of piano lessons for beginners. And while it might not seem entirely integral to the plot, I think you'll find that it does come up during a noteworthy scene later on. So he finds out from Tita that their father, a musical genius himself, is very sick after having two strokes and might not have that much time left. The family lives up in Washington State, on an island just off the mainland specifically. Tita convinces Bobby that he should come up to see their father at least once. But when Bobby gets home from this L.A. trip, he finds Rayette lying in bed, in tears again, with her Tammy Wynette playing. He goes on packing his bags anyway, He doesn't want to go back home, but he feels obligated. I kind of have to feel some empathy for Bobby in this moment because he's really caught between a rock and a hard place. He has to go, but what's he supposed to do with Rayette? And if we are believing that she really is pregnant, then that makes it even more complicated. So begrudgingly, let's just say, he lets Rayette come with him on the trip. And the road trip from California up to Washington ushers in what is, and I think most would agree, the most famous scene in this movie. It comes when Bobby and Rayette come upon a car flipped over on the side of the road and two women arguing next to the wreck. Bobby pulls over and, being the sensitive soul that he is, yells over to them, hey, what the hell is going on? And one of these women fires right back at him, rotate, Mac, 
And personally, I like this part because there's a look of genuine surprise on Bobby's face at her response. I think if my car flipped and I was stranded on the side of the road and you had the balls to yell over at me, what the hell is going on? I don't think I would have been as nice. I probably would have said something else. So they give them a ride. These two women are Palm Apodica, played by Helena Kalianotis, and Terry Grouse, played by Tony Basil. We've seen both of these two before in films we've talked about in previous episodes. Tony Basil, who of course is most famous for her song Mickey, we just recently saw as Mary, the other of the two prostitutes in Easy Rider, alongside Karen Black. She was also the choreographer for Head and dances with Davy Jones during his solo number. And Helena Kalianotes. We saw her in Head also. She's a belly dancer, with a notable belly dancing sequence in Head. But also, Helena Kalianotes is much more than that. She's a pretty fascinating person, and much of it has to do with her decades-long friendship with Jack. So to give you a quick side story here, this is a story that I read on the Hollywood Reporter's website, according to an interview they did with Helena just about two years ago. In 1969, Jack bought his home on the infamous Mulholland Drive in Hollywood, but he hadn't been in it yet. Helena had to come to the house, and it was empty, except for a bed and another bed downstairs. So when Jack came back, he says, Helena, go buy a rug, go buy some furniture, and he gave her a credit card to go and buy all kinds of things for the house. And she ended up doing a lot of these types of things for Jack, like cooking Greek pasta until she hired a chef for him, sewing clothes for him. And they always kept it a very platonic relationship. But I just recently learned this myself. Apparently, she basically lived at that house for several years, like 30-something years, if I'm understanding this correctly. And in 1985, Helena became the queen of Hollywood nightlife, as it were, when she opened up an ultra-exclusive nightclub called Helena's. It was at a space where she had previously taught belly dancing. Only celebrities were admitted there. No pictures were ever allowed. But it was the place to be in the 80s if you were famous. And Jack, rightly so, I think, was one of her first backers when she opened. So I won't digress too much more on this. If you want to read that full article, it's on HollywoodReporter.com. And the name of it is Hollywood's Queen of 1980s Nightlife Finally Tells All. And the date on it is December 10th, 2018. Getting back to the review now, as they're driving, Palm is going on and on about how filthy everything has become. And the two women are talking about how they were headed up to Alaska because it's much cleaner up there. And this might seem like innocuous car chatter, but this is another thing that is important later. So I want you to keep this in your head, especially when you get to the very end of the movie. But right now we're headed into the most famous scene. The four of them stop into a diner where all Bobby wants to do is order toast. I'd like a uh, plain omelet, uh, no potatoes, tomatoes instead, a cup of coffee and toast. 
No substitution. What do you mean? You don't have any tomatoes? Only what's on the menu. You can have a number two, a plain omelet. It comes with cottage fries and rolls. Now, I know what it comes with, but it's not what I want. Well, I'll come back when you make up your mind. Wait a minute. I have made up my mind. I'd like a plain omelet, no potatoes on the plate, a cup of coffee, and a side order of wheat toast. I'm sorry, we don't have any side orders of toast. I'll give you an English muffin or a coffee roll. What do you mean you don't make side orders of toast? You make sandwiches, don't you? Would you like to talk to the manager? Hey, Mac. Shut up. You've got bread and a toaster of some kind? I don't make the rules. Okay, I'll make it as easy for you as I can. I'd like an omelet, plain, and a chicken salad sandwich on wheat toast. No mayonnaise, no butter, no lettuce, and a cup of coffee. For number two, chicken salad sand. All the butter, the lettuce, the mayonnaise, and a cup of coffee. Anything else? Yeah, now all you have to do is hold the chicken, bring me the toast, give me a check for the chicken salad sandwich, and you haven't broken any rules. You want me to hold the chicken, huh? I want you to hold it between your knees. It's a scene that really shows you Bobby's inability to control his temper, but also I think the reason why it's so memorable has a lot to do with just that it's something that should be so simple. Like with everything else that's going on, I've got to deal with this nonsense too. It seems like kind of a microcosm of the social issues of the time, the fitting into a certain role and a person's, in this case, Bobby's resistance to fitting into that role. So as they get on into Washington, they let Palm and Terry out. Bobby and Rayette continue on to a motel. And the next day, Bobby heads by himself up to the family's house. It's pretty clear to me he's not comfortable with the idea of Rayette meeting his family. The Depee house is large and it's very secluded. Bobby has to take a ferry in to get there. Now, this is the point where I'm going to start referring to him as Robert. When he gets into the house, we hear Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 9 in E-flat minor. Robert walks through the empty rooms, peers into one room, and sees where the music is coming from. It's his brother Carl, played by actor Ralph Waite, and Catherine Van Oost, played by Susan Ansbach. They're each playing their own piano, facing each other. So Robert continues to the next room and finds his sister Tita giving their father a haircut. He's played by actor William Challey. He's in a wheelchair, unable to speak, extremely limited mobility. Their father also has an aide named Spicer, and Spicer is played by an actor named John P. Ryan. I bring this up because John P. Ryan is yet another name that we're going to hear several more times on this podcast, working not only with Jack, but also Bob Rafelson. So with Robert being back at home with the family, it reveals a lot about him as a person. He had been away for two years at that point. It seems that in a family full of accomplished musicians, he felt that he was the one failure. It becomes evident that he didn't feel that he could meet his father's expectations. So that's why he left. And that turns out to be a habit of his. But while he's there, he feels an immediate attraction to Catherine. And not that I want to compare the two, but 
I find that it's impossible not to. Compared to Rayette, Catherine exemplifies class. She's engaged to Carl, and Carl is also her piano coach. She's well-spoken. She rides horses in her spare time. And she was previously married to a cellist. And she doesn't make it obvious, but she gives subtle hints that she finds Robert attractive as well. On a day that Carl is out, Robert plays the piano for Catherine during a very introspective scene where, as he plays, we see all these old photographs hanging on the wall, all of family members growing up. It's actually pretty great because the first picture we see is a baby picture of Jack, which personally I've seen posted on the internet multiple times, and it also makes an appearance in one of Jack's later works. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a gorgeous photo of Lois Smith, where she's seated at, I believe it's a piano, and she's looking off into the distance, and it's just a great shot of her. And this is the scene that I was talking about where the title of the film becomes relevant. Robert begins to feel more at home, it seems, after about a week. That is until Rayette runs out of money at the motel and has to take a taxi up to the house. He's embarrassed, let's call it what it is, while the rest of the family, especially Robert's brother Carl, are all very warm and welcoming to Rayette, Robert becomes so agitated while they're all at the dinner table. True to form, he storms out and is gone for the rest of the night. There is one moment where he actually defends Rayette, and that's for a very fleeting moment when Carl and Catherine have some friends of theirs come up to the house, a very pompous and uptight crowd. When one of them, Samia, played by Irene Daly, belittles Rayette's way of speaking, Robert, for the first time ever, jumps up from his chair. Don't sit there pointing at her. I beg your pardon? I said don't point at her, you creep. But I was just telling about... Where the hell do you get the ass to tell anybody anything about class or who the hell's got it or what she typifies? You shouldn't even be in the same room with her, you pompous celibate. Carl, this is really too much. Just calm down. You're totally full of shit. You're all full of shit. But his chivalry towards Rayette doesn't last long at all, because really his interest is Catherine. He storms out of the room to find her. And even when Rayette follows after him and tries to talk to him, he brushes her off, as usual. The next day, Catherine ultimately puts Robert in his place. Not in a harsh way, in a very honest way. The biggest underlying reason why she can't be with him. It's useless. Look, give me a chance. I'm trying to be delicate with you, but you just won't understand. I couldn't go with you, not just because of Carl and my music, but because of you. You're a strange person, Robert. I mean, what would you come to? A person has no love for himself, no respect for himself, no love of his friends, family, work, something. How can he ask for love in return? I mean, why should he ask for it? Living here in this rest home asylum, that's what you want. 
Yes. That will make you happy. I hope it will, yes. I'm sorry. She's absolutely right, by the way, and she explains it perfectly. At the beginning of this episode, I called Robert slash Bobby a narcissist, and I think this drives it home. He has family, friends who try to show him love, but he has such bitterness that he expects it, but he refuses to give it. So I think the question that I want you to have as you go into viewing this film is, does he have a moment of self-realization at any point? If so, does he change his ways or does he repeat these patterns? But also, I think it all speaks to growing up. It's one thing to be young and angry at the world and society, like the young hippie movement of the 60s. But where do you direct that anger once years start to pass and you start getting older and you have more responsibilities? And one more thing I want you to keep in mind, especially when you reach the end of the film, if a person wants to start fresh, what does that entail? Is it starting fresh or is it just another example of running away? And also, who would you have to hurt in the process? So you have to kind of wonder if the things that plague Jack's character are not that unique. Maybe it's the kind of thing that we can all on some level relate to. Five Easy Pieces was released on September 12, 1970, and it would go on to be nominated for four Academy Awards and five Golden Globes. It would mark Jack's second Oscar nod, this time his first in the Best Actor category, it was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress for Karen Black, and Best Original Screenplay for Adrian Joyce and Bob Rafelson. Karen Black did win the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress, tied with Maureen Stapleton for Airport. It was also nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Picture Drama, Best Actor for Jack, Best Director for Bob Rafelson, and Best Screenplay for Adrian Joyce and Bob Rafelson and all deservedly so. Five Easy Pieces is a classic, and it's really a standout for this new Hollywood era that we're entering into. And as we move on into next week, we're going to be talking about a film that was not an acting role for Jack, but his directorial debut. Next week, we'll be covering 1971's Drive, He Said. Plenty more familiar names we're going to hear in there, as you probably guessed. So if you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review, leave a rating, tell a fellow Jack fan about this podcast. The more we talk it up, the more Jack fanatics we're able to reach. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com to get to know some other great original podcasts. You can also find us on social media, You Don't Know Jack Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. So until next week, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack.